Welcome to the Space Door Podcast. You're listening to our Space Talk. Every week on the Space Talk, we are joined by space experts and enthusiasts from across the globe to have fascinating conversations about all things space. This is a recording of our live show of Season 3, Episode 7, Innovating the Future of Space, with Mike Lawton, serial space entrepreneur and the founder of multi-award-winning space technology business, Oxford Space Systems. We discuss, among other things, Mike's journey as a space entrepreneur, his experiences, challenges and stories behind multi-million pound business Oxford Space Systems, and his advice for individuals interested in entrepreneurship, especially in the tech sector. This space talk is also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor, along with all of Season 1, 2 and 3 on the Space Door YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Space Door Live. Hello Mike, how are you doing? Um, That's not a great start for, for a tech entrepreneur, is it? Not switching his microphone on. I'll, I'll answer <laughs> you. I'm really good. Thanks right. I think we can How are you? I'm really good, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome to all of our viewers on Space Tour Live, wherever you're joining us from. Um, welcome to another Space Talk. Um, now, Mike, what are we going to be talking about today? Uh, well, I thought I'd give you a very quick overview of Oxford Space Systems and how the business actually came into being. A quick overview of some of the great technologies being developed by, by the team there and talk about why they're really relevant to our modern day life. And then kind of over to you to, to grill me on, on the entrepreneurial journey and why we need the sort of space technology uh, that we're hearing about in the news. Perfect. Well, I'll let, I'll let you set the scene for our viewers, and then I can't wait to un- ask you some questions. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, well, here is what the business looks like today, and what we're looking at is the custom premises that we built to house Oxford Space Systems at the Harwell Space Cluster in, in Oxfordshire. But this is uh, the result of many, many years of hard work to get to this nice, shiny building. Uh, and most people find the story of how it all started really quite quite interesting. So I'll quickly tell you about that. So about eight years ago, Oxford Space Systems just didn't exist. It was just a complete blank sheet of paper. And I just had some uh, some ideas about what I wanted to do for a space business. Uh, and by the way, my background is in, in technology. So my degree is in electronics. Uh, and I really didn't have that much experience at all to do with the aerospace sector. So I literally was the, na- the naive space tech entrepreneur with a head full of visions. Um, but at the time, there was a competition being run by UK government agency Innovate UK. And the key part of the competition was you could be a pre-startup uh, to apply for this space competition. And what they were looking for were ideas for new space businesses. So I applied to that competition. Um, with the idea of developing deployable structures on orbit because I thought that a new generation of satellites was going to need a new generation of deployable structures because I was looking around at the sort of things we were deploying on orbit, things like solar panels and antennas, and thinking there really isn't a lot of innovation actually taking place in, in that area. And that's where I was going to find my niche speciality. So I applied to this competition uh, and won and uh, I won £100,000, which sounds fantastic, but it was conditional. And the condition was I had to go away and raise at least the same amount again 
from the private investment community, from private investors. And I had 12 months in which to do that. So the clock was ticking. Uh, I had a chance meeting actually at Harwell on campus with a venture capitalist. And his opening line to me was when I told him about the business, he said, Mike, I'm never going to invest in space technology because it takes way too long and costs way too much. But you know what? I'm going to walk to my next meeting. It's going to take two minutes to get there. So why don't you try and convince me? Uh, and I thought this now has to be my, the best ever pitch I'm going to give in, in my life. I've got two minutes to convince an investor. Uh, we get to the door of his meeting room. He turns and looks at me. Uh, I won't use the expletive that came out of his mouth, but he said, Flip, um, you've now caused me a problem. This is really interesting. Can you come back tomorrow? So I came back the following day and really the, the rest is history. I managed to secure uh, that initial investment, which then set me on the trajectory. So I ended up actually starting life in a broom cupboard, literally a broom cupboard at Harwell, where I was trying to haggle a deal on, on my first office. Um, managed to build a team quite quickly in, in rented rooms at, uh, at Harwell. I set the team uh, a challenge. I said, look, we've got to prove to the investment community that space can be done a lot quicker and a lot faster. So let's set ourselves the challenge of breaking a world record. Let's set the record for the fastest time for a new technology on orbit. And that's exactly what we did. And we wanted to do things a little bit differently. It wasn't just about building new antennas and new structures. We wanted to do this with materials that were brand new as well. So we actually started like developing our own proprietary materials that we then turned into the products that I'm going to show you. So the first material that we developed, if this video will kindly play for us, um, is um, if you imagine a, a tape measure, a builder's tape measure, but made out of a, of a highly flexible material, a composite material. We coiled this up and put it on a small satellite, roughly the size of a loaf of bread called a CubeSat. And the idea was to display brand new material successfully deployed on orbit. And that would validate a lot of the technical making about this material. As you can see in the video here, this animation, this is exactly what we did. We deployed this long boom like uh, structure of the spacecraft and that validated the whole bunch of predictions we made about the mural and uniquely for the size of spacecraft we retracted the boom back into the spacecraft to show that we had this kind of truly deployable and retractable system and you're seeing here first ever images we took on space uh, on orbit and we did set a record so from no company to successfully developing this material and turning it into a boom structure we did that in just over two and a half years, and that's the fastest it's, it's ever been done. And that was really an inflection point for the business. We really grabbed the, inter uh, the interest of the industry. And that, that led to a phone call from one of the well-known builders in the UK, Airbus Space and Fence, who said, Mike, we really like what you've just done with that boom uh, on orbit. We've got a challenge. We want to demonstrate a whole bunch of projects uh, being developed in the UK to help remove space debris. So can we have one of your booms and we want to deploy a target on orbit and then shoot it with a harpoon to demonstrate that potentially we can use a harpoon system to snare large chunks of debris and help clean up space. And they asked me, is it going to work with your boom be able to support the target we want to shoot at? And I said, I have no idea. Has anybody ever shot anything on orbit before. Let's see what happens. It was purely a very high risk R&D experiment. 
uh, we successfully deployed the target. A lot of vibration because obviously we're in the vacuum space. There's no air to damp the movement uh, of, of the boom, but it stabilized really nicely. Uh, and then the harpoon launched with such force it actually tore the end of the boom off. But we successfully penetrated the target exactly where we wanted to do. And the mission was seen as a complete success because none of those bits fragmented uh, on, on orbit. So that was a really great, exciting point uh, for us in, in the business. But from there, we wanted to make much more higher value systems. We demonstrated this material, but the real value lies in developing antennas for communication. And to celebrate um, the business expanding and moving into that new facility that I showed you, we, we did this. Rather than cutting uh, a ribbon to celebrate moving into the business, we use that material that I just shown you on orbit, but we put it together in such a way it had a huge amount of stored energy, such that when we release, uh, pull the pin out and release the system, it deploys beautifully to give us this very large parabolic uh, antenna. Uh, and once again, uh, huge success for, for that antenna. And that led to a lot of interest from a number of space companies wanting to fly that um, on orbit. And that's given rise to these portfolio of antennas that you see here. And that type of antenna that you saw being deployed is used for what we call synthetic aperture radar. And that's a really fancy way of saying a radar from space that can image the ground. And we use radar because it doesn't matter whether it's day or night or there's bad weather, we can get some great images from orbit and that helps with um, Earth observation, land management, uh, ship movements, um, basically what's going on on the surface uh, of the Earth. And we also use some really interesting techniques such as origami to uh, make sure we can fold these structures in the smallest possible space. But the idea is how do we fold things like antenna surfaces in the smallest possible uh, volume, folding or creasing. So we use a lot of origami techniques to to achieve that um, the other types of antennas being worked on by the business and you may have heard of this this uh, expression the internet of things so the idea of every device is connected to the internet but if you're in really remote areas perhaps in, in the desert or on top of a mountain or indeed say shipping containers being moved across the surface of the ocean how do you know what's going on with those sensors so using special type of Internet of Things which radiate their signal towards space, we can actually pick up these thousands, if not millions of devices, all radiating their signals about what's going on with what they're monitoring on orbit. Now to do that, you need special types of antennas. And once again, you can see what looks like a coiled spring uh, out of the side of uh, a very small satellite. Once again, they're called a CubeSat, the size of a loaf of bread. And this is revolutionizing how we track things around the planet. So these Internet of Things sensors are now currently active today, and we're picking up their signals on orbit with the sorts of antennas being developed at uh, OSS. Now, if you want to pick up really, really weak um, signals, say something as weak as uh, a key fob you would use to unlock your car, well, believe it or not, we can actually detect signals that small and that weak on orbit, but we need a much larger antenna to do that. So it looks a bit like a, a pop-up beach tent, but that's what we call a helical antenna. Uh, and that white material um, is a special type of cloth that's designed to withstand the space environment. And in the same way 
it helps uh, give you rigidity on a beach tent we use exactly the same principles on orbit to give us a very structurally rigid uh, antenna which stows in a really small volume uh, the great people helping develop that technology you can see in the photograph here so this was taken to celebrate moving into our, our premises uh, our new facility at the harwell campus so i tend to make the technology sound great and attract investments but it's really the really smart people uh, behind the business the great team of engineers that actually turn this into into reality so there's a very quick overview of, of business some of the exciting technologies that we've developed that are currently on orbit and actually underpinning a lot of our, our modern lives uh, making internet traffic uh, a lot faster, allowing us to track things as they move across the planet. And of course, now we're talking about mega constellations and how a next generation of, of internet everywhere uh, will be delivered from space with some of the technology being developed by, by OSS. Thank you so much, Mike, for giving that overview. I hope it helps, helps all of our viewers tuning in a bit more context around what Oxford Space Systems does. Um, I'm really interested to speak to you about your entrepreneurial journey in building OSS from what you said was like a, a, yourself, an idea on a piece on a blank piece of paper into a, an organization which has over 50 people um, in the heart of Harwell working for it today. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I, I think um, you know, having an idea is, is the easy part, to be honest. I think everybody quite often in their lives comes up with an idea and think wouldn't it be great to build a business uh, around that uh, but the real work of course is is turning that vision into into reality and it can be a really really tough journey because you know you've got to convince people to come and work for you and when you're building an engineering business when you think about it engineers are generally trained in the disciplines of de-risking technology it's about how do we make things reliable how is this thing going to last 10, 20 years? How is this thing going to survive on orbit? So their whole ethos is about reducing risk. So to come and join a crazy entrepreneur in a journey is probably one of the craziest, riskiest career moves you can ever make. So you've got to try and get your engineering team in those early days you know, to, to embrace career risk as well as technical risk. Uh, and then even when you have convinced people to come and work for you, how the hell are you going to pay anybody until you're actually generating income and selling technology? So then you've got to have the skills of being able to get out there, convince investors to put money into your business. So you've got to bring all these pieces of the jigsaw together so you can see why it's not for the faint of heart and you can see why perhaps most businesses tend not to survive beyond, say, the kind of first five or six years of life, it is an incredibly dangerous uh, path to, to navigate. How, how, how would you say you have built the trust of, firstly, people who have formed these engineering teams and then these in investors, because OSS have raised, I think, over 10 million pounds from the private um, venture capitalist community. How do you build that trust? Yeah, it's, it's about finding out what, what motivates um, people i think most engineers um well they tend to be very smart people because it's a, you know it's an engineering discipline uh and i think most engineers perhaps sometimes are frustrated entrepreneurs themselves and like to be listened to so the way i structured 
the business, certainly with um, with, with co-founders or, or that initial team coming in, was well, your opinion is going to be listened to because it's an incredibly flat structure in this business. So you will be heard. Your ideas are critical, and here's a way: if we're going to do things faster than has ever been done before, you know, you're going to see your ideas are on orbit. And that's incredibly personally satisfying to, to an engineer to think, you know what, that is my idea and it's, and it's on orbit before I retire. And on a financial level, getting people to embrace risk, well, you don't just pay a flat salary, you give them a chunk of the business. So I think it's really important to have decent share schemes, these decent share option schemes to incentivize people that you know, you've got your lottery ticket. We're in this together. If we turn this into a really valuable business, then on top of a good salary, you know, you're going to get those shares, which should be worth a lot of money if we get this right. Okay, wow. And when you were starting OSS, um, and it was you and I think a few other people co-founding it, um, and you could see it, you could see in people slowly starting to become interested. You were, you were going through the phase of, okay, this is, I need a team now. How, how was that phase of, putting a team together? Um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough because once again, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of money. You don't have an absolute clear business plan of where this is going to be in five years by the very nature of, of being startup. You know, it's a pretty scrappy existence and you have to pivot quickly. Uh, as you saw in some of those intro videos, we started developing our, our flexible composite material and actually at one point we convinced ourselves that hey the future is going to be things like deployable boom systems which could then underpin deployable solar panels but very quickly it turned into actually antennas deployable antennas is where the real money is going to be and where the market actually wants us to develop technology so it's a case of actually what do we know about you know rf engineering what do we know about antennas well kind of very little so we now need to go and find that that talent so the ability to kind of pivot with the team quickly uh, uh, be honest you know we lack the skills in this very small team that we put together now how do we go and attract other people with the skills we need to, to build this team so there's a certain mentality i think in people wanting to join a startup which is different from the mentality of people wanting to join a business perhaps in kind of year four, year five. Um, uh, and you do need that, 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 that blend or the appetite for risk, having everybody wanting to kind of smash the lights out and, and change the world, perhaps isn't what you want in a more operational business where you do want the people that want to come in and have a more stable environment. But you never want to lose that entrepreneurial energy, that desire to, to, to take risk because that drives innovation in the business. So that blend of skills is really important but you've got to be attracting the right talent at the right time to the business. Do you think that's more of a personality thing when you say um, people who are joining OSS in its first couple of years, do you think it's a certain personality of, of a person that they take on that risk rather than join a company which is, which is slightly more well-established? Yeah, and, and I think it comes from perhaps engineers that i think there's two types of people that join a startup you've got guys kind of straight out of, out of college and uh you know kind of what have you got to lose uh you know there's no you know mortgage to pay you know you haven't generally got a wife and kind of you know three kids that you got to look after so your appetite or your ability to take risk 
is a lot greater than perhaps uh, more mature people with a family. So actually getting very young talent to come to a startup is pretty easy to do. But of course, you actually need a good blend. You want some really experienced engineers who have been there, got the scars of, of getting technology wrong to provide that, that foundation. And it's those sorts of people that become much harder to attract. So the way I did it actually was appealing to those engineers that perhaps were feeling a little bit frustrated in their current positions because generally with, with space, if, especially if you're working on a science mission, you know, that could be 15, even 20 years before you see your technology on orbit. So appealing to the nature of engineers that actually were a bit frustrated, things were taking too long in the traditional setup, will come and work at OSS and we're going to do things a hell of a lot quicker and you will see your ideas on, on orbit. And oh, by the way, we're an incredibly small team, so you will be influential, you will be listened to and we'll get your tech on, on orbit. And that's, uh, that can be really compelling to, uh, to more mature engineers as well. Yeah, just, just a quick one. How did, you, how did you go about finding these frustrated people in the industry? Uh, well, yeah, uh, LinkedIn is great. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I've got a phone book and, you know, kind of six degrees of separation. You know, who knows a good RF engineer? Well, yeah, John probably knows somebody wanting to give John a call. So literally it was just building on, on the network. And I'm really proud to say in the first, I think, four years, maybe even five years of OSS, we never used a recruitment agency. It literally was by introductions and networking. And the great thing about Harwell campus was uh, it was kind of right place, right time. I think OSS was space business number four or five on campus, and now it's well over 100. So there was lots of campus promotion events where I could stand up in front of an audience, talk about the vision, the great things we want to do. And literally every time I came off stage, someone would say, hey, can I come and work for you? Or, you know, my husband or my wife is really looking to, you know, for a more fulfilling role. And we you know, were really up for joining a startup. Would you have a conversation? So, yeah, that, that's how I did it for the first four years. That's, that's so interesting because you normally hear, you, you hear stories about startups. And it's so fascinating today that I'm actually getting to speak to someone who's been at the heart of one over the past seven, eight years. Uh, the one story that sticks in my own mind about recruitment, I was fortunate enough to present uh, at a space event in Tokyo in year, I think, the third year of the business. Uh, and I played the videos that we just played today, actually, that first technology being deployed on, on orbit. And this really enthusiastic um, Japanese chap came running up to me uh, afterwards and uh, in pretty good English he said I really want to come and work for you I really want to come and work and I'm like well, well that's great but kind of who are you uh, and he said oh I, I'm Dr. Yoshiro Ogi um, I've been working at JAXA uh, Japanese Aerospace uh, Agency the equivalent of, of NASA in, in Japan I'm now currently teaching uh, structural engineering for space at a university but I'm really frustrated. I really want to see my ideas on orbit and that's never gonna happen in academia. Uh, so I wanna come and work for you. And so long story short, he moved to the UK, brought his entire family over and has been with the business ever since. And yes, we have flown his ideas on orbit. That's great, that's great. Well, congratulations to him uh, for making that bold career choice. Yeah. Um, we've actually got um, a question from the audience from Jamie Rob. Hey Jamie, thank you for joining us. Um, how do you see the sector changing as it becomes more and more private? Uh, well, private means commercial. 
which means any private business needs to stand up on its own two feet financially, which means it has to be a sustainable business. It needs to be generating revenue. And I think we're going to see technology move increasingly quickly if it's financially based because the market forces will take over. You know, who's first to market with the new technology? Who can develop new services to lock in those customers? So I think we're entering a really exciting phase in, a phase in commercial space. It's going to get a lot quicker. Uh, and space is not immune from market forces. We will expect to see casualties. Companies will fail in exactly the same way terrestrial companies come and go. I think it's going to be really, really exciting. Um, we're now seeing a huge amount of private money investors have very much warmed up to the space sector. And of course, they're chasing the next investment opportunity. And for startups and scale-up businesses, this is fantastic because cash is the fuel for growing any business. So to have investors wanting to come into the space sector is absolutely critical to drive that growth. Yeah, you, you talk about how the cash is the, uh, an incredibly important part of it. Do you think OSS would have got to where it got to so quickly without the investment? And how important do you think investment is for young entrepreneurs out there who have an amazing idea but either can't find the investment or don't know how to find the investment? Uh, so the first question, uh, that's an easy question to answer. Absolutely not. You know, OSS would not be where it was if it had not received significant investment it has done even, even, though, even, even though sorry to interrupt even though it had these amazing ideas yeah because how do you develop those ideas developing any new technology costs real money you know you need real talent which means you've got to pay you know real wages you need the equipment to do that that costs money you've got to test the, anything you develop so you need appropriate qualified test facilities and that's one of the reasons we were at Harwell but you know, uh, you're renting a thermal vacuum chamber to simulate space, you, you know, that's a thousand pounds a day. To book a, a session on a vibration table to simulate launch forces, well, there's another few thousand pounds. So it's very easy to spend a few hundred thousand pounds just designing and, and testing even a small piece of equipment. So very quickly, you can rack up a pretty big bill. And of course, you've got to prove all this before you can sell anything. So the only certainty is in the early days of developing space hardware, all the money's going out the door, it's not coming in. So the only way you're gonna do that is be lucky enough to raise significant external investment, or you go the alternative route, um, which is being a part-time consultancy. So you do you know, jobbing design work for other companies to generate the revenue and then grow that way. But that is a very, very slow, organic way of, of growing a business. And you end up being kind of eternally frustrated because you want to be working flat out on your technology. Yeah. Because as we said, commercial space, it's a race to market. So you want your technology to market before your competitors. But if you've got to fund the business yourself, you've got that distraction of, of earning money to keep the lights on, keep yourself fed by doing a bit of consultancy work. Was there ever a time in the early stages of OSS that you felt like we might not survive? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what, I, I think until you're fully a sustainable business, um, yeah, and I think that focuses the mind. Um, 
you know, you don't work in, in, if you're the founder, you don't actually work in the business. It is your life. It literally takes over. There's no such thing as, as time off. My, my wife still jokes. She says, we don't actually go on holiday. I just take you to another location to work. <laughs> it's just warmer and sunnier. Uh, and she says, you never switch off. I know your brain is constantly, constantly running. Um, but it's the nature of the beast. But if it's your own baby and it's your own vision, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, it's really tiring and draining and it is work, but it doesn't feel like work because, you know, it's it's your vision. And, and it's really motivating when you've got people um, not risking their careers, but changing their careers to come and support you in that vision. You know, we only live once. Your life is precious. So for people to say, you know what? I ain't going to spend X, X years of my life with OSS, with, with Mike, developing these ideas. That's a you know, phenomenal privilege uh, to, to have. Uh, therefore, that motivates you massively. Yeah, I think, I think people who are watching, who, who run their own businesses, who are, who are future, who are entrepreneurs or students who want to be entrepreneurs, I think they'll really resonate with the fact that it doesn't feel like work. Um, but yeah. then I have a question for you. OSS was your kind of brainchild in, tw in 2013. So for those of you watching, uh, Mike's not actually with OSS anymore. So why did you leave this thing you've spent so many years dedicating your life to? How come you left? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and I think it comes down to some of the challenges we see uh, in, in the UK and Europe in the way businesses are funded with venture capital. Um, so VCs, venture capital, tends to have a, a relatively short time horizon. They need to invest and they need to get out of, of their investments. They need to return uh, to, to their investors because it's not their money, it's other investors' money coming in and they just manage it. So most investment funds have a 10-year time horizon. So within 10 years, they need to return uh, a multiple uh, back to the fund. And, and it's true, most uh, VCs expect a 10x return on their money. So for every pound they put into Oxford Space Systems, they expect at least 10 pounds back out within that time frame so kind of no pressure <laughs> um but i'm very much the kind of the maverick entrepreneur you know i think we're only just getting going at, at oss there's so much more to be done to really increase the value of that business um but that doesn't directly align where the investors want to go with the business they understandably want to see a much more operational business such that it prepares itself ultimately perhaps for a trade sale or even a flotation and that requires a different type of mindset a different type of ceo so i agreed to to stand down from the business just over a year ago because i am the maverick entrepreneur i'm the guy coming with the ideas to con conquer the world uh, so we installed a more operational focused ceo to take the business in the way it's demanded by by the investors so there's been no, no massive falling out. I'm still the largest private shareholder in the business I founded. I still support the business on a bit of ad hoc um, consultancy and strategy work. But it's freed me up to go and do what I do best, which is kind of spot the next opportunity and build the team. So I'm on to you know, tech business number four now, uh, and I'll do it all again. Speaking, speaking of um, what you're on to now is um, another company called Oxford Dynamics. Do you want to tell... Um, everyone a little bit about what Oxford Dynamics is doing. 
Yeah, I'll give you a little sneak preview behind the curtain, although I'm not going kind of completely full disclosure um, yet. Um, the website is actually quite vague, but what we're, what we're doing is working on both terrestrial uh, technologies as well as space technologies. Uh, the terrestrial technology is to do with, with drones. Uh, we've spotted an opportunity, uh, a market gap in, in drone technology. We've actually secured funding from uh, an area of the MOD, which is interested in the idea. So I'm in the privileged position of having all my R&D 100% funded by a certain section of, of the government because they, they find the technology very interesting, which is a great, great way to start a business from, from day one. And that is providing the funding for us to internally develop some novel ideas to do with um, the protection of satellites on, on orbit from things like space debris, as well as nefarious interference, shall we say. I will say no more. Uh, that sounds really interesting. I'll, we'll leave it at that for Oxford Dynamics. We'll be able to break cover probably in six, six to nine months, but exactly kind of what we're doing in that area. Awesome. I think everyone, everyone's going to be looking forward to that. Um, we've got another question in from the audience. Uh, Jay Smith. Hey, Jay. Thank you for joining us. Um, and Jay's asking, has the vision of OSS always been the same from the start, or have you been forced to pivot um, on your business model? in order to um, appease investors? Uh, that's a great question. Um, the technology has certainly pivoted. As I said, we started life kind of focusing on this kind of novel boom technology that we showed in the video. And the idea was to essentially revolutionize how solar panels could be deployed uh, on orbit, as well as other kind of panel-like structures. But as I said um, earlier, it became clear that the real value lay in deployable space antennas. So there's a kind of a tech pivot. So we repositioned the company, not purely as a deployable structures company, but as a deployable antennas company and structures. So we kind of had that, that pivot focus shift in the technology. In terms of the vision for the business, no, I think that is still, that, that remained unchanged. What I wanted to do was make OSS a recognized world leader in novel deployable antennas and structures and become the go-to company for CubeSats and Microsat and antennas because the market, the reason I started the business was there was only really two large incumbents supplying antennas and other structures to the industry, both based out of the US, both very much tied up in US defense projects. So you have these large behemoths of companies that I worked out could not move quick enough or hit the commercial price point for new space. The idea of building these very small satellites that didn't just want one or two antennas, we're talking about constellations. So I couldn't see any company out there structuring itself to be in a position to make say 100 antennas and hit those commercial price points. So that, that was kind of the niche I spotted, and that was the vision to become that go-to volume producer of commercial space products and free of, of, of U.S. Uh, Department of Defense restrictions. Yeah. So the vision is there. Do you, th do you think it helped that you were not originally part of the space industry and you were kind of looking from the outside in? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, that's a great question. I think the answer is, is yeah. You know, I was naive enough to think I could do it. Rather than, rather than listening to the experts. Uh, although um, 
uh, in within the first year, actually, I had a chance meeting with what turned out to be um, our largest U.S. competitor, but I didn't really realize that at the time. One of the large U.S. antenna companies kind of looked at me. Uh, it was at a, it was actually at Harwell. They were at a visit to Harwell in the in the U.K. And the guy said to me, he said. Um, you don't stand a chance uh, against us. You should just kind of switch off the lights and go home. We're, we're going to crush you. Um, and, I, and I looked at him and said, look, for you to actually say that shows that you're worried about what I'm doing because you wouldn't bother saying that. You would just get on and do it. So you're sending the warning signs because I think you feel threatened because I don't see how you can make antennas at the price point that we're going to make them at. And you certainly can't make them in the volumes that are needed by by the industry because that's not how you're set up. You're systemically unable, structurally unable, to do that. So I think you're nervous of us. And at about three years after that meeting, I met the guy again when I was in the U.S. And uh, he smiled. He said, "I'd never forgot what you said to me." Um, and he said, "You know what? If I was 20 years younger, I'd come and work now at OSS." And I thought that's great validation. Yeah. so yeah I, I didn't listen to, to the experts because they would have told me not to bother awesome. that's, that's, that's so great that's such, such, an, such an inspiring story um, of a space entrepreneur going through that going through that phase it, it's a balance because um, you, you want to you want you need expertise in knowledge because you know I need technical expertise but you also need to be open-minded to, to challenge the status quo to do things a little bit differently and it's it's one hell of a delicate balance you, you've got to get right so i guess you know people say that it was it skill or was it luck and uh, uh, it's i think it's a a blend of both you've got to have you know you've got to have the skill but my gosh you've got to be lucky but uh, you know the harder you work the luckier you get don't you what would you say was your your hardest hardest phase throughout the process of building OSS? Uh, it was the uh, it was getting the investment that that kind of raising the first couple of million because it was still incredibly high risk technology. Uh, we hadn't really you know, we hadn't flown anything on orbit at that time, so we still were very much an aspirational yeah. business. Um, uh, and raising money is is almost a full time job in itself. So I would say the first the first two two and a half years were, were probably yeah definitely the hardest slog. Raising the money was the toughest task. And and what's interesting is once you've demonstrated something working on orbit, it kind of flips flips the other way. We then ended up being in the really privileged position of investors seeking out the business. So it went from. You know, people not wanting to invest to us being in the very privileged position of turning investment away because we were oversubscribed. We didn't want to take any more money in because that meant dilution of, of shares. So it was a really interesting flip to see in, in the market. So saying no to VCs is a really satisfying thing to be able to do. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah. What would, what would you say is your, your best trait as a tech entrepreneur that has really helped you? Um, well, people tend to say to me, I can be uh, quite a, uh, you know, infectious personality. If you come and kind of sit with me for half an hour, I tend to get people quite infused about the technology we're working on. Um, so I, I think it's that kind of the outward facing CEO is kind of my best quality, getting people excited about the technology and being able to articulate complex technical things 
to to a lay audience so i avoid jargon wherever i can um and i yeah i think that's what it is being showing real enthusiasm about the technology i want to develop uh, hopefully that's infectious and, and rubs off and people want to come and work no it definitely is it definitely is um and let's let's flip the question then what about your biggest weakness that may have led to um a mistake potentially <laughs> Oh, my biggest weakness. Oh, I'm terrible at detail. I, I'm, I, I'm a great starter, but I'm really bad at finishing things. So I need to backfill whatever I do with people that actually enjoy finishing things. So yeah, that, that's my eternal weakness. I'm, I'm really quite bad at finishing things. Wow, okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. Let, let's talk a little bit more about the future of space and tech entrepreneurship. Yeah. You say that you're really passionate about kind of inspiring the next generation of tech uh, and space entrepreneurs, and especially kind of to do with engineering and science entrepreneurship. What, what's your definition of a good space or tech entrepreneur? Uh, you've got to have vision. You, you've got to see an opportunity that perhaps others haven't spotted and really believe in it. Uh, and if it is new technology, what you're trying to do is predict where the market's going to be in maybe three, four, five years' time because it can take that long to get technology on orbit. So that ability to have a vision that far out is critical. Obviously, you need tenacity. You've got to hang in there because you will meet a lot of people that say it won't happen, it can't be done, a lot of naysayers. And yeah, you've got to have the ability to attract people to want to come and work for you or with you and the ability to convince customers and investors you know, to put their money uh, with you, um, especially the investment community. Uh, you know, you're in competition with everybody else that wants a slice of their money and investors invest in money making machines. So the job of an entrepreneur is to convince an investor they've got the best money making machine they've seen. Uh, so understanding how the investment community works, I think it's a key skill for any tech entrepreneur as well. Um, what I quite often see being made as a mistake with other budding uh, tech entrepreneurs yeah. is, um, and I used to do it, you talk about that which you are most comfortable with and confident with. So you end up talking about the technology, not articulating to an investor business case and why this makes sense financially so in my later pitches i was just talking about the opportunity and why this made sense financially as a technology and on one occasion an investor said yeah this is this is really great but what is the technology <laughs> oh, oh you want to talk technology sorry i thought you wanted to talk how it's going to make you richer but yeah, let, let's let's do a deep dive on the tech. Let me talk about high strain composites, you know, and, and beta cloth and, and thermal ratios and things. Yeah, we can do that if you want to. But I didn't think you wanted a technical talk. Wow. But you do, you do have the, the spectrum of investors, don't you? Where you have, I think, majority of them who are interested in the, the money making machines, as you say. But you also have the other end of the spectrum who are actually kind of interested in knowing what you're going to be doing with their money yeah no you, you're right yeah i mean there's no such thing as as a, a one-size-fits-all in investor at one end of, of the extreme you do have those investors that all they're interested in is 
show me the Excel spreadsheet and let's work through the gross margins. And it's just purely a financial model. And they really aren't that interested in the tech. And they tend to be investors in more mature operational type businesses. And then right at the other end, one of, uh, one of my favorite investors uh, in uh, OSS is in fact the, um, uh, the Institute of Mechanical Engineers. They have an investment fund called the Stevenson Fund. And believe it or not, that fund isn't about making money from its investments, which sounds bizarre. Yeah. Its rationale is to encourage and stimulate engineering in the UK. So if they can be part of growing a company, then that becomes a great case study example to encourage other people to take up mechanical engineering and build the engineering base um, of the UK. So that's a great example of, of in fact, uh, you're not a greedy investor and they're incredibly patient. It's what we call an evergreen fund. They don't actually need to exit uh, along the normal time horizon that other funds do. Uh, and then you get another type of investor, what we call business angels or high net worth individuals. Uh, and one of the most exciting and interesting phone calls I ever had, I was on the way to present at a conference in London. My phone rang. A guy said, look, um, uh, are you coming to this conference? Uh, and I went, yeah, kind of, who is this? He said, well, uh, this is so-and-so. Um, you, you're, you're late to the conference. And I said, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. You know, my, my train was delayed, but I am coming. Kind of, but, but why? What, what's the urgency? I'm not presenting till three, hour, three hours time. And he said, oh, yeah, he said, I, I'm a business uh, angel and I'm really interested uh, in, in investing in your company. And I was hoping to meet you so we could talk about investing. And I thought business angel probably going to be 20, 30, 40 K. Um, and he said, look, uh, I, I know you're very busy, so I'll just cut to the chase. I've made quite a bit of money as, as a city trader, but I've always been a space geek, always been fascinated. With, with space and I really like what you've done with OSS. So I, I'd like to start with an investment of half a million if, if that's okay. <laughs> uh, and once again, you're not, uh, you're not a greedy investor, very, very patient and just fascinated with the technology. So tell me about the technology. Tell me why this is exciting. Tell me how we're going to change the world. So it's a complete spectrum of investors. I think it's great to have a balance if you're fortunate enough to do that because they keep each other in check then. That's, that's incredibly fascinating. And it's, it's lovely to hear your stories of going through, going, through the, going through your entrepreneurial journey. And I'm sure we'll have people um, listening to this talk after it, goes like, um, after it goes onto our YouTube channel. And we'll have um, students listening in who are maybe towards, um, towards the end of their teenage, teenage years. And we'll have university students um, and we'll also have young engineers who maybe have graduated and are might be looking for a job or are in the first, like, I'd say, five years of their of finding uh, of of their first job. What and for those of, for those of them who who have entrepreneurial an entrepreneurial spirit and feel like they need to do something um, entrepreneurial minded. Um, what advice would you have for them in order to become a good entrepreneur, maybe future in their careers? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it, it starts with uh, an idea and it's easy to convince yourself um, that you've got a, a brilliant idea and we all suffer from confirmation bias. 
you know, we tend to seek out that information to confirm what we believe rather than challenge, critically challenge what we believe. So I would say to any budding young entrepreneur, be, be intellectually honest. Yeah, great. It's easy to find the information that kind of supports your position. But go and find that information that could challenge you. Um, you know, does the market genuinely uh, exist? What does that competitor landscape look like? You know, the Internet's a wonderful thing. Who else is out there operating in your area uh, or operating in, in the space that you want to get into? And, you know, the world is functioning perfectly well without your idea at the moment. So who's going to buy your idea, your technology, and why? Why are people going to change their behavior and pick your solution over all their other options, including the option of doing nothing? So if you can honestly answer those questions, why people are going to change their behavior or change where they spend their money, then you're on a really, really good trajectory. And you don't need to have all those answers, but you have enough to look yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm not fooling myself. I genuinely think this is worth a shot that's kind of foundation 101 question to sort out yeah and maybe what about maybe what about for those young uh, budding entrepreneurs who might not have an idea at, at this current moment of time and they they acknowledge the fact that right now i don't have an idea which might be the case what skill set do you think they should focus on um uh, if, if you're a budding entrepreneur um of course it depends kind of in, in which sector but we're talking about space um so if you've got a strong technical degree, that's a great place to start because you're always going to be useful and you can develop your own technology. It doesn't mean you have to go and convince other expensive engineers to come and, and work for you or with you to start with. That's a great position. Um, but of course, there's other types of degrees as well. Space isn't just about being you know, technically geeky. Um, if you're studying finance, for instance, this industry is, is going through a commercial revolution, coming up with new business models, new methods of financing the businesses. That in itself is an entrepreneurial skill, which can be incredibly valuable. And I've seen actually financial entrepreneurs coming into the sector, working out how they can finance uh, various startups or mid-size and scale-up businesses. So there's financial entrepreneurship. Um, you know, we need project managers. We've got to publicize this, this industry. So this industry is a this fantastic place that it's ripe for disruption as we move away from the old mindset of very large incumbents taking a long time to make really big, expensive satellites into much, much faster pace um, companies making much smaller satellites in much higher volumes. And that's a completely different mindset. So it's ripe for having these opportunities spotted. Um, and if you don't yet have the idea, but you have entrepreneurial leanings, well, go and work for a startup. Go and expose yourself to the environment. Get to understand why the company does what it does. And invariably, you'll meet other people and you will have sparky conversations. Probably in the first year of working for somebody else, you'll probably come up with that killer idea. And go and start your own business. And OSS, for instance, um, of course, the, uh, through the course of the first, I think, four years, five years there, um, three people left to go and start their own space businesses. Wow. So I was really, really pleased that in that sense, OSS itself gave rise to another three space businesses. Wow, okay. that's, that's incredibly interesting. 
Did, did you always know growing up you wanted to be an entrepreneur and you wanted to build your own companies, I should say? Uh, I've always been a, a kind of tech nerd, so I was always getting in trouble for playing with technology. So I remember when we got a, a brand new color TV, the first thing I did was take the back off it. My parents weren't in the room. I was just fascinated how the colors performed. I managed to electrocute myself quite badly. So that was not a great move. So I learned the power of electricity by doing that. Um, <laughs> and I remember going to, to my grandparents and they had an old upright piano. And I got in horrendous trouble because I took the back off the piano. I wanted to see how the noise was made uh, when I was bought toys at Christmas. I just took them apart. I wanted to know what was inside. So I've always been kind of like a kind of a tech fiddler, wanting to know what's under, under the hood. Um, and I realized that I was perhaps better as an entrepreneur than working at other companies because I would always get frustrated when I was working for other people. Mm -hmm. And recent, so, you know, I'm on to company number four. So I've been an entrepreneur for, for 20 years. And my wife actually said to me, you have to be an entrepreneur because you're unemployable. You drive other people mad because they won't move fast enough for you or won't be visionary enough for you. Um, so yeah, you're unemployable. You've got to do this because that's the only thing you can do. Now. I think that was mean, but yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, I wish you wish you the best of luck with Oxford Dynamics. Um, but what else? What after Oxford Dynamics? And what does, what else does the future hold? Is there? Do you have any other ideas that you've scribbled down on a notepad and say they, maybe this could work in 10, 10 15 years time? Yes. Or maybe, the maybe, maybe earlier. Yeah, yes is the short answer. There's a couple of ideas that don't fit within um, Oxford Dynamics' remit. And there is another company being formed that I'm putting those ideas into. And they've already secured some funding. And they are commercial uh, products. And I'll be able to talk about those probably in about six months' time. So I, I guess I can't stop myself. So it's not just Oxford Dynamics. There's another little company that's coming along, which is uh, doing very well. Yeah, awesome. uh, but ultimately, what do I want to do? Um, you know, I've, I've I've learned a lot. I bear a lot of scars from getting it right and, and getting it getting it wrong. And so it's good to be able to share those experiences. So perhaps ending up being more of a mentor, maybe being a chairman of, of a number of startups, and just trying to guide the next generation of entrepreneurs to yeah, to, well, to build on what I've done. You know, I've I've been pretty successful. But if I can help someone stand on my shoulders and become the next SpaceX in the UK or the next Google, then that'll be a fantastic uh, epitaph, I think. Great. Well, we can't wait to have you back on in six months' time and talk about your next startup. Yes. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping we're going to change the world in, a, in another direction and I can talk about it in about six months' time. Great. Um, well, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you, Mike. I've learned so much about entrepreneurship and I hope everyone else who has uh, tuned in tonight on YouTube and Facebook on Space to Live um, has learned something from Mike's entrepreneurial journey with Oxford Space Systems. Um, if you guys want to learn more about Oxford Space Systems, head over to our Space Store Partnerships page um, and you can learn about Oxford Space Systems and all of our other space partners and also visit, visit their websites and buy their cool merchandise. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. Um, Mike, thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, great. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, and look forward to coming back at some future point to talk about more entrepreneurship. Thank you for listening to the Space Door podcast. 
you can tune in live to our space talks and be part of the Q&A every Thursday at 7pm on youtube.com forward slash space live. Whilst you're there, catch up with season one and two of the space talks and lots more. Like what you heard today, why not support us by visiting our website spacedoor.co and check out how we are bringing space to everyone, everywhere, every day.